It is, as always, good to see y'all, and I'm excited about Galatians. We've got a couple more weeks in this book, and then my plan is to go straight from Galatians to James, because those are the two most opposite books in the, in the New Testament, as I think you'll, you'll see if you don't already know what I mean. Now, my wife recently told me that she thinks that Galatians 5, 22, and 23 are my favorite verses in the Bible. I always tell people my favorite verse is Ephesians 2.10, for you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared ahead of time for us to do. Uh, and I stand by that. But she said, you quote Galatians 5.22 and 23 all the time. And I said, yeah, I, I do. You're right. That's, in case you don't know, that's the one about the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to look at it tonight. And I think the reason I quote it so much and the reason I do love that verse so much is it's such a great corrective to the way we typically think. Let me just give you some examples. So when we're thinking of who's a great preacher, who's a great pastor, who do we esteem and, and look up to, we usually judge preachers by their giftedness. Boy, I can listen to him all day. Or the size of their crowd. Look at this great church he's built. Or their doctrinal correctness. He preaches the truth. But people in all those categories stumble and fall and destroy churches and do terrible things and the truth comes out and you say, but how could that be? How could he have been such a terrible person when he grew such a big church or when he was so gifted or when he preached the truth every Sunday? And, and that's because Jesus told us ahead of time, the way you evaluate a man of God is by their fruit. Their fruit meaning their character. Does he display the fruit of the Spirit? Does he have godly character? Is he growing in Christ? That's how we know whether or not a pastor is a man of God. In a similar way, how do we evaluate ourselves? How do we judge for ourselves how well we are doing as Christians? I think I'm a good Christian because I used to cuss and I don't cuss anymore. Or because all my friends go out drinking on Friday night and I don't go with them. Or I think I'm a good Christian because I go to church every Sunday. I didn't used to do that, but I do that now. Or I, I know parts of the Bible that I didn't used to know. I have right beliefs. I used to believe all kinds of crazy cockamamie things. Now I know the truth of scripture. All those things are good. But if we don't see the fruit of the spirit evident in our lives and growing in us, then we're not mature believers in Jesus. We're not living out the Christian faith, even if all that other stuff is true. And remember, the fruit of the spirit is not something you need to try to do it's evident in the believer without trying because the Spirit makes it happen. Just like a peach tree doesn't have to try to produce peaches. And I, as, as a, a, someone who is admittedly ignorant about trees, I mean, I know some of y'all can walk up and go, oh, that's a water oak, oh, that's an elm. I'm not that guy. But if I see peaches hanging from a tree, I'm pretty sure it's a peach tree. In the same way, you and I can look at a person and we can say, I don't know whether that person votes red or blue. I don't know whether that person likes American-made cars or, or foreign-made cars or doesn't have a driver's license. I don't know anything about that person. But if I see these qualities in him or her, then I know they're a believer in Jesus. It's as simple as that. Uh, I'll give you another example. We make things in life so complicated. We, we try, uh, we, we have so many things that we're, we're trying to puzzle over in, my mind, in our minds. Okay, how can I make my marriage better? How can I be a better parent? How can I do a better job of managing my money so that it will uh, it'll accomplish more? What kind of goals should I set in my life if I want to be really successful and live a meaningful life? And, and how can I have more friends? And how can I be a better friend to the friends I have? And 
you know, all we need to really do is focus on increasing in the fruit of the Spirit. That should be our goal. It's not that the other things aren't important. They are. And it's not that it's wrong to ask questions like that. But if our focus became the goal of my life is to grow in love and joy and peace and patience and all the rest that we're about to read about, guess what? It's not going to solve all our problems, but it's going to make the rest of life simpler. Because if you have those qualities in abundance and you're growing in those qualities and you're married, your spouse is going to be glad. You're going to be a better spouse than you would otherwise. If you're not married, you're going to be becoming the kind of person you need to be anyway, so that whether you get married or not, you're going to make people happy. You're going to have more friends because people are looking for people that evidence those kinds of qualities, and you're going to be a better friend to those friends. Uh, You may not achieve all the goals that you otherwise would have set for yourself, but if you're focused on growing in those qualities, you're going to achieve better things than you would have set for yourself, things that are more significant and more lasting. So... All of that is a long introduction to the passage we're going to look at tonight. Just as a reminder, last week we saw freedom from the law, which is what this chapter is about. Freedom from the law does not mean that a Christian can do whatever they want because God's going to forgive them anyway. That is, that is the fallacy that many non-Christians believe and even some Christians believe that the gospel teaches, and it's not that way. It really... Gospel freedom is exchanging one form of slavery for another, a form of slavery that beats us down and destroys us for a form of slavery that makes us joyful. We're trading a a slavery to the law and to our sin nature for a slavery to Jesus Christ and to others, because now we serve others in his name. Now we serve him gladly. So how do we live out that life? That's what this passage is about. How do we actually walk in the truth, if we're, not, if we're no longer bound to a law, then how do we actually live out the Christian life? Verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So it's important to define those two terms, the spirit and the flesh. I think all of us understand that when he says the spirit, he's not talking about the incorporeal part of us, our soul. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God in spirit form. And I don't think I need to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway, the Holy Spirit of God has always existed, but from the day of Pentecost on, which is in Acts 2, he came to dwell in the heart's of men and women who follow Christ. And here's where we differ from our Pentecostal brothers and sisters who I esteem very highly in love, but many of them will say, you can be a believer in Jesus, but you need a second blessing when the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And I don't see that in scripture. What I see instead is there's no such thing as a follower of Jesus who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. So if you believe in Jesus, if you're his child, Holy Spirit dwells in you, you have access to God 24-7, 365 days a year, that's the Holy Spirit we're talking about here. That's the one we follow. He's the one who enables us to live out the Christian life as we follow him. Now the other term in this passage, and the thing that's opposed to the Spirit, is the flesh. If you've grown up in church or you've read the Bible, you've seen that term a lot. I need to tell you seven things about the flesh, okay? I I did a little Bible study on that term in in getting ready for this Bible study. So I I have to share that with you because otherwise my homework will be wasted. So uh, number one, the term flesh 
is not always bad in Scripture. Sometimes it's used in a positive way or a neutral way. Some examples, Genesis 2.24, maybe you had this in your wedding. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Uh, John 1.14 says that we beheld his glory, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When Jesus became flesh, he didn't become bad. He just took on human flesh and bones. Uh, the other one I thought of was Galatians 2.20. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me. So it's not always a bad thing, but the way Paul often uses it, and it's especially Paul who uses this term this way, it means our old nature. It means the desires, the thought patterns that ruled our life before Christ took over. It's the old man, as he might call it. Now, the third thing, the flesh, according to Romans 8, 7, makes us hostile to God. This is why, even though the gospel is good news, it can make people so angry. Sometimes you tell people the good news and they, they, they're so full of joy, they weep to hear it. Sometimes they just walk away uh, just as if nothing had happened. But sometimes they get mad at you because the flesh is hostile to the things of God. You don't want to know. They would rather think that God is, some, is way out there in the ether where we can't touch him or maybe even doesn't exist. But when you tell them the gospel truth, it makes them angry. Uh, number four, 1 Peter 2.11 says, the flesh are the passions that wage war against your soul. So think about addiction. Addiction is not a worse sin than any other. But addiction is an example of what we're talking about. It's sort of an extreme example of how uh, you have a, when, you, when you have an addiction, you desire something that you know is bad for you. And when people try to tell you, you need to stop this, you get angry with them. Even though you know in your mind they are doing this, they're saying this because they love me, it makes you angry because your passion, your flesh, desires what is harmful to you. It is waging war against your soul. And we look at that as Christians, and hopefully we see that and we feel a deep empathy. We think, oh my gosh, that's so terrible. This person needs help. And that's true. But we better not feel superior because all of our sins are caused by the flesh and that same passion exists. And while it may not manifest in such an extreme way, your desire to gossip about somebody, your desire to uh, sleep late instead of getting up and reading the word of God, right? Any sin you commit is because of a passion inside of you that is waging war against your soul. Literally, the flesh does not want you to receive the things of God. Number five, 1 Corinthians 2.24 says, the flesh cannot understand the things of God. So even if you tell someone the, the gospel truth, even if you, you get them to read the Bible from cover to cover, if they are in the flesh they will not understand it. They will not comprehend it. It will not make sense to them. Jesus even said, he told his parables so that people who heard would not understand. They would, they would receive those messages, those stories, and they would think it was just ridiculous. Whereas the people who were in the spirit, the people who were chasing after the things of God would hear those stories and it would just imprint itself on their brains and they would be filled with the truth. Um, this is interesting. The flesh can't understand the things of God. And this is why Henry Blackaby in his book, Experiencing God, I know many of you have read that, this changed my life when I finally understood this. He said, if you ever hear an unbeliever 
talking about the things of God, asking about the things of God, asking about spiritual questions, you know for certain that God is speaking to them at that moment and therefore you should stay around and do your best to answer their questions for as long as it takes. Cancel your appointments, uh, you know, call your family and tell them I'm going to be late coming home. I'm, I'm in this conversation and I need to follow it as long as it goes. Because how do you know that God is speaking to that person in that moment? Because an unbeliever doesn't talk about the things of God unless God is speaking to him, because the flesh does not understand or care about the things of God. Does that make sense? Number six, Jeremiah 17 says the heart, and by that he means the flesh, is deceitful and sick. Your flesh lies to you. This is why a person who's been in church their whole life can justify having an affair because they say, well, I know what the Bible says, but I also believe that God wants me to be happy. And we can hear that and say, oh, that's ridiculous. But I've seen intelligent, church-going people say that because the flesh is deceitful and sick. Or uh, uh, here's maybe a more relatable example. Uh, a good Christian man or woman can literally hate a fellow human being. I mean, want the worst to happen to them. Just despise them, hold grudges, and, and just burn with hatred toward them. And when you try to confront them about it, they'll say, well, I think God feels the same. I think God feels the way about them that I do. Because the heart is deceitful. The heart, the flesh is sick and it lies to us. We need to understand that. Sometimes your mind and your heart don't tell you the truth because the flesh still exists. Number seven, in spite of our best intentions, the flesh often stops us from doing the things we know we should do. Remember the disciples, James, John, and Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm sure they had very good intentions to stay awake with Jesus and pray for his, his ordeal. And yet they kept falling asleep. The spirit is willing, he said, but the flesh is weak. Think about Paul's great confession in Romans 7. If you haven't read it lately, go back and read it. Man, what, what honesty. Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't end up doing. And the things I, I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can free me from this body of death? He, he's talking about how the flesh gets in the way of us living out our best intentions, the intentions we have to do what God wants us to do. And that explains why Christians are still capable of doing terrible things, are still capable of making huge mistakes because we still have the flesh inside of us. So Paul's points in the verses I just read are two. Number one, we need to recognize there's a war going inside of us all the time between the flesh and the spirit. All the time. That is our constant reality. Number two, the answer to that conflict is not to return to law, but instead to follow the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk more about what that means in just a second. But just acknowledging, that's the whole reason I think God put the book of Galatians in the New Testament, is because he knew it would always be our temptation as Christians. When we see this struggle before us, to just say, okay, we just need to buckle down and get legalistic. That's the answer. You know, a preacher needs to stand up and tell us, uh, you know, how long women's hair should be and how short their skirts should be or long they should be and, and you know, what, what TV shows we should watch and, and what kinds of things men should say and should, you know, he needs to just line it all out for us. No, that's not the answer. The answer is to follow the Holy Spirit, which is a lot more complicated, but it is the answer, the only answer. So, what does that look like? So first he says in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, 
idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you might be relieved or not to hear what I'm about to say. There is, I think, no profit in dwelling on each one of those terms, so I'm not going to do a word-by-word, this is what this word means, okay? Some of you may have wanted that. A lot of you probably are glad to hear that I'm not going to do that. Um, I don't think there's any profit in it, but you can see that they fall into certain categories. The first three things on the list refer to sexual sin. The second two things on the list, idolatry and sorcery, those are religious sins, We know what idolatry is, sorcery would be, any attempt to, I guess, summon up spiritual power apart from God himself. The the next eight, by far the biggest category, are relational sins. So the, the works of the flesh come out in how we get along or don't get along with others around us. And then the last two, drunkenness and orgies, those, it's kind of hard to categorize, but I would say that refers to loss of inhibition and just kind of letting your letting your desires go wild and have a field day. Important to note, this is not an exhaustive list. That's why he says, and things like these. The reason I say that is, I don't want anybody to think, oh, this is the list of the really bad sins. As long as one of my sins isn't on there, I'm okay. I just read that list and okay, I'm, I'm pretty good. I don't do any of that stuff. Hadn't gotten drunk in, you know, a long, long time, so I I guess I'm good. That's not the way it should be. Don't breathe a sigh of relief. He's giving us examples. He's giving us examples of what happens when the flesh is in charge. But notice the last thing he says. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That does not mean this is a list of unforgivable sins. Every single one of these sins can be forgiven, are forgiven, anytime someone confesses them to the Lord with a repentant heart. That's not what this is about. What it's saying is, if you think you belong to Jesus, if you think you're a child of God, if you think you're saved, but you're still living like this, you need to go talk to God about it and say, why is this still happening in me? This is not the way a believer in Jesus behaves. That's what this says. If this is what rules you, then Jesus is not ruling you. You can't have both. Either one or the other is going to be in charge. Only one can hold the steering wheel, so which is it? That's the point he's making. Here's to put a finer point on it. If you call yourself a Christian, but you can't get along with other people, find that you've got all this long list of enemies. Your your life is one conflict after another. You hold this smoldering hatred in your heart and you can't admit to even bear one ounce of responsibility for that conflict, then you need to ask Jesus if you need to be born again. And that's just to take one example out of this list. So that's the works of the flesh. Now, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Why does he say against such things, there's no law? He's saying, listen, the legalists came down from Jerusalem 
and told you you weren't really saved because you weren't living out the law. Believe you me, Paul's saying, and the whole point of the book has been, you don't need to listen to those guys. They don't have your your best interests in mind. They're not preaching the true gospel. So now he's saying, when you live like this, there is no law in the world that comes from God, at least, that will condemn you. But I think in contrast to that list of the works of the flesh, there is great profit in dwelling on each one of these fruit. I've done nine-week sermon series where I look at each one of these one by one. I've done that, I think, here. I'm not going to take that much time, but I want you to think about what is on this list and what is not on this list. Love, of course, comes first. Because love is, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, and many other parts of the scriptures, it is the greatest thing of all. To follow God is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. All the commands in scripture are summed up in those two things. Love is where it's at. And remember, love is not affection. Love is not attraction. Love is not like. Love is action. It's not how you feel. It's how you act. Of course, when you love somebody long enough, you do start to develop attraction and affection and, and, and liking for them, but that's not what's most important. You choose to love. Joy is next on the list. Um, have you ever heard the saying, laugh in the world, smiles with you, frown in the world knows you're Baptist? Have you ever heard that one? Well, you have now. And I think we can all say, we've known people, maybe not even just Baptists, but people that we'd say, oh, wow, she's... Boy, she's a real serious Christian. Well, do you like her? No, I don't like her at all. I mean, we all know people like that, right? Male and female. That fer- fervent churchgoers, incredibly mor- moral, know the scriptures, and just the most unpleasant and meanest person you can possibly imagine. And, and that's a sh- that is a, a sin against God. It is a sin to not be joyful. Joyful doesn't mean you're always happy. It means there is always something in which to rejoice. The opposite of, of joy is not sadness because sometimes there's such a thing as godly sorrow and there's godly grief. The opposite of joy is self-pity where you just mope and, and mourn and all you can do is focus on woe is me, right? Uh, peace is not the opposite, is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the ability to be calm and trust in the Lord in the midst of everything. It doesn't mean you never feel fear. You can't, you can't control what you feel. It's what you do with the emotion of fear. If you don't let fear get you off track, don't let fear stop you from doing what you know you're supposed to do, then you have peace, the peace that passes all understanding, guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Kindness is different than niceness. Niceness is, I want to do whatever I can to keep you from ever not liking me. Niceness is very self-centered. I know this because I've tried to be nice most of my life. And I came to a realization some years ago, there's, that's not the Lord. That's, that's my own desire to be liked and not to have people angry with me. Kindness, on the other hand, is if I were you, what would I want someone to do for me? Whatever, if I were going through what you're going through, what would help me the most right now? That's kindness. Um, then goodness. Goodness is, I mean, this is quite simple. It's the opposite of evil. It is uh, to have the character of God. It is to avoid things that, uh, that are perverse, things that are polluting, things that are evil, and, and instead to gravitate towards that which is light 
and glorious and excellent. Faithfulness is the ability to say, I am going to be there for you. Remember the, the men's organization back in the 90s, Promise Keepers. That was the idea was we are going to be faithful to do the things we said we were going to do. Not just in marriage. Yes, in marriage. I, I made a promise to my wife that I would love only her for my whole life. But in every area of life, I will, I will fulfill my promises. And that's not just for men. Faithfulness means I can, I can be counted on to always strive to do what's good, what is right. Gentleness, this is interesting because we hear gentleness, and in actually some verses it's, it's said meekness. And that, that word's gotten a bad rap because it rhymes with weakness, and it means nothing the same. It does not mean the same thing. Meekness or gentleness is someone who is very strong, but never uses that strength to hurt, but instead keeps their strength under control considers the feelings and the needs of other people. Uh, gentleness is, I mean, we see gentleness whenever you see a, a big, strong man holding a baby. We see gentleness when you see a, an intelligent woman who has people who are driving her crazy, and she knows how to make them miserable, but she chooses not to. She knows how to tell them off because she's smarter and more articulate than they are, but she chooses not to. Gentleness is strength under control. And then self-control. Self-control is basically the opposite of every male you know who's 25 or under. You know, whenever you're around uh, uh, young men and you hear the words, watch this, run away. Just run as far away as possible. Self-control means the ability to, to control your urges, to control the flesh that you don't have to say yes to every thought that pops into your head. You don't have to say yes to every desire you have, that you are able to, main, you are able to keep those impulses under your control to the glory of God. Now, I want you to notice two things. Number one, notice that when he talks about the flesh, he talks about the works of the flesh. But when he talks about the spirit, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Why doesn't he say the fruit of the flesh? Why doesn't he say the works of the Spirit? I think it's because works are things anybody can do. Any idiot can sin, right? Any idiot can do any of the things on the list of the works of the Spirit. You don't have to try hard. It just happens. But no one can produce fruit. I like peaches, but I can't produce peaches. I can't make peaches grow off the end of my arm, no matter how bad I try, how hard I try. Neither can you. Watermelon or, or cherries or any other, you know, blueberries, you can't do it. But a peach tree produces peaches. A blueberry bush, I don't know, I've never seen one. Produce Dewberries, I, I know about those, those dewberry vines that grow in the summertime where I grew up, they produce dewberries, Right? In the same way, anyone can sin, nobody can achieve the fruit of the Spirit unless the Spirit is in them. That's not to say that unbelievers are incapable of love or joy or any of those things. It's just that you can't, those things are transitory, right? You're joyful as an unbeliever because some good things happen in your life. You're peaceful as an unbeliever because all of a sudden all the bad stuff is gone, but only God can make you a person who loves in spite of all the obstacles and who gives you joy in spite of all your trials and peace in spite of all the fear. Only the Spirit can do that. 
the second thing I want to point out is, notice it doesn't say fruits. It says fruit, singular. And that is important. And here's why. When people look at this as a list of fruits of the Spirit, it is too easy to say, well, I got five out of nine. So I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I'm pretty good at love and I'm pretty good at peace. And yeah, I'm kind most of the time. I don't have any patience. And that's okay because I got five out of nine. And that's not the way it works. Or yeah, I've got peace and I've got gentleness and I'm very self-controlled, but I've got no joy at all. I, I'm, just, I'm just miserable all the time. Well, no, that's not the way it works. You don't get to pick and choose. They should all be manifested in us. And if any of them is missing, this is the good thing is, you can look at this list and go, I know that right now I'm struggling in the area of joy. I'm just too focused on my problems and I'm just, I'm just not rejoicing in anything. And you can go to the Lord and say, Lord, I know I shouldn't be this way. This is not your fault for allowing these circumstances to come in my life. This is my fault for not dwelling in your spirit. So show me what I need to do to increase in joy. Or I, Lord, I'm just having a problem with patience. The, the people in my job or the people at the DMV or whatever are driving me nuts and I just get so angry. Lord, what do I need to do to grow in patience? Because you know if one of these things is missing, there's a problem. I mean, right down to, I just can't say no to that ice cream after supper every night. Lord, where's my self-control? I need to grow in the Holy Spirit, and he will show me the way. It is the fruit, not the fruits. Now, verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, I'm going to say something that some of you might not like, you might disagree with, but I just need to say the verses and chapters were invented by human beings. The verses and chapters are not original, okay? I hope that doesn't wreck your world. Paul did not write this letter in verses and chapters. Somebody came along hundreds of years later and said, let's make this easy. Let's make this easy to remember and segment into parts. Let's put it in chapters and verses. So can we agree that God did not decide what the chapters and verses were? Human beings did. So when I say what I'm about to say, I'm not saying that God made a mistake. I'm saying human beings did. Okay, that's my long introduction. Here's what I'm about to say. I think verse 26 belongs in chapter 6, not in chapter 5. Next week when we look at chapter 6, you'll see he's talking about as we live out this life of walking in the Spirit, here's what it means for our relationships with each other. So what about verses 24 and 25? How do we win the battle against the flesh? Again, at the start of this, we said, the temptation of Christians is, if I know I'm not doing well, I just need to dive harder into the law. I need to, I need to set up more rules and more boundaries. And, I just, and the danger of that is, if we stick by those rules and boundaries, we get proud of ourselves. We start looking down on other people who don't follow those same rules and boundaries. Boy, I tell you, tell you what, when I stopped watching TV, it was the best thing in the world for my soul. Well, good for you, but that doesn't mean you walk around feeling superior to people who are watching TV. And then you split your church because we're of the non-TV watching congregation, whereas they watch Netflix and all this other godless stuff. The answer is not returning to the law. The answer is walking by the Spirit. So what does that mean? 
two things he says. He says, first of all, you crucify the flesh. It's a really, really vivid term, isn't it? And it, it's referring to the repentance that takes place when we hand our sins over to the Lord. When you repent truly, and by repent, I don't mean, Lord, I admit I did wrong. I don't mean, Lord, I sure am sorry that I got caught. It's not even, Lord, I, 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 I'm truly sorry I did this. It's, Lord, I never want to do this again. I hate, I hate this sin. I hate it with at least some percentage of the hatred. I know that you feel for it. And so I never, ever want to go down this road before. Help me to set up a roadblock, dynamite the bridge, whatever it takes to never do that again. That is what Paul calls crucifying the flesh. Now, again, that's an interesting term for a couple of reasons. When someone was crucified, they didn't die immediately. It took hours, if not days. In the same way, the flesh does not die when we repent. It becomes weaker. Our problem is we keep giving the flesh more life. God's trying to kill the flesh and we're over there feeding it and binding up its wounds. So crucify the flesh. Second thing, unlike a crucified person, you crucify a person, you're crucifying the whole person. You don't crucify a part of their body, you crucify their whole body. But here's where the metaphor breaks down. There are parts of our flesh that can act independently. Here's what I mean by that. Maybe when you got saved, you were highly conscious of a specific area of your life that you knew was wrong. Maybe you had a tendency to sleep around and so you're, when you got saved, you were like, Lord, I am gonna be yours body and soul and you have never once strayed from then on. You have been sexually pure. Or maybe your thing was, I'm just a terribly greedy person and Lord, I am giving over to you my finances. From now on, I'm gonna tithe, I'm gonna be generous. I'm not gonna worry about how much I have or how much somebody else has. And that's great but then years pass and you realize, you know, I never even considered my thought life. It never even occurred to me that these angry feelings I have in my heart are actually sin that I need to deal with, or these lustful feelings, or these selfish motivations. And at that moment, it's not that you weren't really saved, it's that you haven't crucified that part of your flesh yet. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. Honestly, that's something that for me goes on all the time. There are parts of my life I thought I successfully crucified and they rear their ugly heads again. And I'm like, okay, I guess I need to come back to the spirit and, and help get his help to, to truly repent. The Christian life is a continual cycle of discovering new parts of your life that need to be crucified, that need to be handed over to the Lord. I hope that doesn't, uh, that's not a shock to any of you. I, I imagine most of you have experienced the same thing. So we crucify the flesh. That's one part of winning the battle. The second part is keep in step with the Spirit. I love that image because what it says is the Spirit doesn't just sit. He's moving. He's in action. He is teaching you things. He is taking you places. He is introducing you to people. He is creating opportunities for you. Remember my favorite scripture? Uh, created a, for, in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared ahead of time. That's the Holy Spirit. Like, okay. I made you to talk to this person. I made you to be the voice of Christ in this workplace or in this apartment complex or on this school campus. So go to it. You keep in step with the Spirit means that, that you are aware of those promptings and you're following them. So 
When he says, this is an area of your life you need to crucify, you listen. When he says, this is a person I want you to reach out to, you do. How do we do that? You know, I, I don't know about you, but I've never heard the audible voice of God. Maybe a few of you have. I've, I've known people who have. I've never heard it. And even the ones I know, it's been a once-in-a-lifetime thing. So how do we do that? Well, that's another whole sermon. But I will say this. Don't tell me you want to hear the voice of God unless you're reading the Word of God. Because every time you read the word of God, he is speaking to you, if you have ears to hear. Every single time, even in the begat chapters, right? He's speaking because he inspired that. That is his word for us. So being, being in the word is how you keep in step with the spirit and being part of a local body of believers, of which this is one, but not the only. Being part of a local body of believers is how you keep in step with the Spirit because the Spirit indwells His church. All right, so let me just tell you this story and then I'm done. When I was 15 years old, um, I had an uncle who was my hero. He was my favorite uncle. He was 10 years older than me. Um, he had surrendered the ministry and he and his wife, my Aunt Judith, were students, or he was a student at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. She was getting her PhD, her put hubby through. So um, I, 15 years old, and I don't know what, how this occurred to me, but I said to my mom, summers out in the country were pretty boring. I said, mom, I'd like to go see Uncle Tim and Aunt Judith. Would that be okay? And she called them. They said, yeah, just send them up. And so at 15 years old, my parents drove me to Austin, which is about an hour and a half away from the house, a little less than two hours, put me on a Greyhound bus that took about eight hours to get to Fort Worth. And man, you talk about an adventure. I'm 15 years old, you know, growing up in Yoakum, Texas, actually suburban Yoakum, you know, a little country area. I'd never been away from my parents by myself. And I'm sitting on a Greyhound bus with, you know, the, 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 the uh, I wouldn't say the dregs of humanity, but uh, people you don't usually see in Yoakum, I'll put it that way. And so I go up there and... You know, Judith picks me up. I spend about a week with them. And they didn't have any money. They couldn't take me out to ball games or movies or restaurants. So what we did is we hung out with their friends, fellow seminary students. So we went out to a park and had picnics. And they, you know, they took turns throwing me passes with a Nerf football until, they, you know, one of them's arm would wear out and then another one would throw to me. And we went out to a lake and we went swimming and we did other things like that. All week long, we just hung out together. And at the end of the week, we even went to their church. At the end of the week, on my way home, I said to myself, those are the kind of people I want to be around. See, I knew that in a few years, I'd be going off to college or wherever God took me. I didn't know where that was going to be. But I said, when I get out on my own, I'm going to make sure I'm around people like that. Those are the kind of people I want to be friends with. And I didn't have friends like that where I grew up. It's not that there were, I grew up in a good church. I thank God for it. But little bitty church, two or three other teenagers who went. Uh, there were Christian teenagers on my high school campus, but it's not like we had some group that brought us all together. I wanted to be around people my age who loved God and were passionate about it. So when I went off to college, I kept that promise to myself. Before classes even started, I went over to the Baptist Student Union, not the only Christian organization on town, but that was on campus, but that was the one I chose. And uh, I mean, that was a revelation. 
students on that in that organization not perfect there were some there were some oddballs there and there were people with problems but um yeah people my age who followed christ with all their hearts that made a difference in my life that changed the way i followed christ the way that i lived the way i related to my roommates most of whom weren't christians helped me know how to engage them that also was a revelation and then halfway through that first year actually halfway through the second year uh met the woman who would be my wife and got married right after college a couple years later the lord called me to the ministry went off to that same seminary with where my uncle had gone didn't know that was going to happen. Didn't see that ahead of time. But I don't know that it would have happened if I hadn't met her, if I hadn't gone in those doors to that place. I don't know that I would be here today preaching to you, ministering to you as your pastor. If I've done any good for you in your walk with Christ, you can say, thank God that I ran into those young men and women on that seminary campus all those years ago. I say all that to say, what I saw in them that I liked was the fruit of the Spirit. That's what appealed to me. That's what I didn't see in other people. Now, I saw that in my parents, right? But they were old, right? Eh. Teachers, Sunday school teachers, pastors, ah, they're old people. But these were young, cool people. And they were filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And I wanted what they had. Don't underestimate what can happen in the world around you if you choose to crucify the flesh, if you choose to walk in step with the Spirit. You may think of yourself as just a boring, humdrum person, but you don't know how many people are going to see what they see in you and say, I want that, and then whose lives they will touch and the ripple effects that will proceed just from the fact that you say, I want more fruit. And God says, that's what I've been hoping you would ask me for all this time. So maybe Carrie's right. Maybe this is my favorite scripture. I'm still going to say it's Ephesians 2.10, but this one is not half bad. Uh, Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you so much. You are good. You are so powerful and loving. You can take ordinary people and do extraordinary things through us. And I pray, Lord, that we would pursue you with all our hearts and and learn to love you more and exhibit this fruit. And Lord, where we're falling short, uh, I pray your spirit would make it clear to us and Lord, help us to grow and produce people like this. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.